Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 339, and I had a conversation with Sahaj Sharda. Sahaj is an anti-monopoly activist, a college pricing critic, an Ivy League law student, and author of The College Cartel, which will come out next year. There are current lawsuits aimed at several of the nation's top colleges questioning their admissions practices. We discuss college price gouging, admission scandals, high-pressure testing, and Sahaj's plan to take on some of the biggest institutions in academia. Really interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to you hearing it. It was uh, enlightening. Check out Hey Human Podcast for links and to learn more about my guests and the show. Check out SusanRuth.com to learn about me and my other artistic endeavors. Please follow Susan Ruthism and Hey Human Podcast on social media. Find my music on Apple Music or wherever you get your music under Susan Ruth. My most recent record is called All I Ever Wanted Was Everything. Check out my relationships and sex show, Are We There Yet?, with sexologist and healthcare practitioner Mara Edelman. It's on YouTube at youtube.com slash show. And right now, there's a fun giveaway happening on the show, so definitely go check out that YouTube. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And I want to take a second to talk about the shooting at the Q Club in Colorado devastating. My heart hurts about it. And then another shooting in Walmart in Virginia and just these senseless acts of violence, people with hate in their heart, whether it's self-directed and they don't know how to handle it. And so they, they put it outward or whether it's an ideology or they've been manipulated by media or family, which happens all the time. Um, it's just, it's horrific. A loss of life is horrific. It's so sad. And I just, I wanted to make mention of it. And just, I mean, what do you say? It just hurts my heart. Well, be well out there. Be careful. Be kind. Take care of each other. Be love. Be love. We need it so much. All right. Here we go. Sahaj Sarda, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you, Susan. I'm really happy to have this conversation with you. What started you on the path of life? Sure. So um, I grew up in Northern Virginia. My parents are immigrants from India to the United States. And I went to this high school in Northern Virginia called Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology, which is this specialized STEM school. You have to take a test to get in. And so I think earlier than most other students, I was exposed to sort of these like elite, hyper-competitive status games when it comes to education. Because getting into that high school in my local community was sort of like getting into colleges for most people um, outside of that community uh, just a couple of years later. And I remember there were kids when I was applying to high school had been studying for this test for like five, six years. They'd been doing test prep for like a high school entrance exam, which was crazy to me. Um, and I think it was crazy to a lot of people, although, you know, no one really internalized it or really spoke about it in that way at the time. And then when I was in high school, you know, something really interesting happened, which in retrospect, I can now understand, you know, how crazy this was, which is that there was a student in the year above me who got into a college admission scandal 
And so what happened was, you know, at this hyper-competitive high school, everyone sort of, you know, placed their self-esteem in the context of where they got into college. So there was this weird status dynamic where um, it was super important to get into a good school, not because you wanted to go there, but because you wanted to prove to all the other kids how smart you really were. And there was this one girl in the year above me who told everyone that not only did she get into both Harvard and Stanford, but that these schools had come to a special arrangement where she could do two years of both and, and graduate from both. Um, this is something that schools had never done before. So, you know, naturally, it, it aroused quite a bit of skepticism in a, you know, somewhat jealous environment. And people started to call bullshit on the story. But not before news crews from South Korea came to our high school to cover what they dubbed the genius girl. This is a girl with uh, South Korean origins. And this became a massive media story in South Korea that this girl had done so well in college admissions and it became a human interest story. And so as more and more people started to voice skepticism, the, the tenor of the story changed. It went from, you know, a human interest story into a scandal. It turned out that the student had been making this whole thing up. Uh, she not only had the schools not come to a special arrangement for her, but she, in fact, she'd gone into neither one. And it ended up with uh, her reputation getting ruined, both here and internationally. The scandal was covered in local press, the Washington Post, CNN, other places. And her parents had to go on record and apologize. And I think they literally were quoted as saying, we apologize for raising our daughter the wrong way. And so at a very early age, I saw like, you know, how toxic some of this stuff could be and how, you know, one person's mistake um, in this really competitive, insecure environment could spiral out of control and lead to someone's reputation being tarred for the rest of their life. And, you know, this is, this is a theme that started to repeat when I was at Georgetown uh, after I graduated from high school and, and went for my undergraduate studies, the varsity blues scandal happened. And uh, this is the scandal where uh, wealthy people were bribing athletic coaches at various elite colleges to pretend that their their kids, their children, were world-class athletes. And so there was this girl in my class uh, who pre pretended to be a tennis prodigy, one of the best tennis players in the West Coast. It turned out she'd never really played a game of competitive tennis in her life. But because her parents had bribed the, uh, the tennis coach at Georgetown, she had been able to get in by bypassing you know, the regular scrutiny that is applied to most students. But I remember what was really weird about that scandal was, was that there wasn't really a feeling of shame amongst the students at Georgetown that her, her parents had like tried to use money to get her in. The more like shameful aspect of it, I think, within the context of Georgetown was that her parents hadn't like done the bribery in the right way. It was like sort of like they were being cheap um, because they hadn't paid the development office up front through a donation in the millions of dollars. They tried to skim it through this like, you know, back door. Um, in a non-legal way. And that was real. So that was really where the scandal was within the context of the campus. And I thought that was crazy too. And so already these themes were starting to develop in my mind that, you know, there's something really wrong with how much scarcity there is and, and all of the behavior that's happening here when it comes to admissions, you know, how competitive it is, what kids are willing to do in order to get in, you know, what parents are doing, what kind of pressure parents are putting on their kids. I mean, in, in that case, I just mentioned Varsity Blues that girl's parents both went to jail. And so the question is, who's really benefiting from, from this system, right? I mean, it's not wealthy students. Who's, it's not wealthy parents who are, you know, risking jail time or paying way more money than any degree could be worth. 
it's not smart students like uh, the girl a year above me at Thomas Jefferson who are feeling so much pressure that their entire sense of self-esteem is, is getting crushed in this process. And, it, and it's really not middle-class and poor students because the cost of tuition has skyrocketed to such an extent that, you know, I mean, the, the risk trade-off is absolutely insane. And so the question is, who's really benefiting? You know, I think the common narrative is that uh, the wealthy benefit from the system. But, you know, what I came to realize throughout all of these experiences I don't think that that narrative is really right. I don't think anyone really benefits from the system apart from the schools themselves. And that was the perspective uh, that led me to start researching what are the economics of this? How does this market work? And eventually led to my book. I'm curious, being first generation uh, from immigrants, I know that there is the idea that, especially among certain, there's the myth of the model minority among certain folks and you had your own requirement to get into this prestigious school did you feel that at home a lot the pressure of i must succeed intellectually in order to succeed in life or even to get the approval of my parents so look i think that was definitely in the background i think what was interesting about my family is it wasn't something that was made explicit my parents never said to me like you know this is what you have to do but it was almost like it was so implicit that it was it was always there with the elephant in the room, which is, you know, you have to get good grades. If you didn't, that would be such an aberration from, from what is expected uh, that it didn't even need to be, be set. And so that was definitely like the culture I was steeped in. You know, a little bit of family history, like my my grandfather grew up in this farm in India, not very wealthy at all, in fact, quite poor. And he would study by candlelight. And so that, that's like the family lore, uh, that education is like this, this panacea, the silver bullet. It's how, you know, you can uplift yourself. And, you know, through osmosis, that didn't even need repeating something that I like absorbed growing up. And so that definitely was something in the background. But, you know, what I came to realize is like, you know, the idealism that my family, I think, held towards education wasn't really, wasn't connecting with with the reality of some of these elite institutions that I was coming to recognize where everything was so transactional, so status oriented, where it was about everything but the education. It was in fact about like not educating people is really where the currency of these schools was coming from. It wasn't about expanding access to knowledge. It was about restricting who has access to these institutions and these networks. Do you mean that in terms of the hyper wealthy or do you mean that across the board because i mean there's uh, for example stanford has an open network of education that they post all that those lectures for free online Mm -hmm. things like that so does yale i believe i think mit does it so are you talking within the realms of the hyper wealthy or are you talking to everybody Right. So, so it's interesting. So MIT has open courseworks uh, or open courseware, I think is what they call their product. I think a, a bunch of schools have uh, mm-hmm. places where they post their lectures online, Coursera, YouTube. I mean, you know, in the last 20 years with the proliferation of the internet, knowledge has never been, you know, less than a click away uh, before in, in human history, but now it is. And so the question is, well, wh- well, if you can get an MIT education online, why are you going to MIT? And, you know, one of the, one of the things I, I, I pose this question in my book is, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln never went to law school and yet was a great lawyer, uh, self-taught. He borrowed books 
and learn them himself. And so the question is, why don't more people do that today, right? Like if he could do that then, uh, imagine what Abraham Lincoln could do with MIT open courseware or, you know, Yale courses online. And so why aren't more people self-taught today? In fact, way fewer. Why do people want to go to these schools to begin with? Especially, you know, during the pandemic, when everything moved online, the, the net difference in like what you were getting on Zoom versus what you would get on YouTube was as low as it's ever been, yet people are still choosing to enroll in the schools. What explains that? And, you know, what I came to realize is the value of prestigious degrees is in the signaling, and it's not really in what you learn. It, it, you know, in the vast majority of cases, whatever people major in, even in the STEM field, they don't end up actually using it in what they do day to day, right? So you have all these math majors who then go and work on Wall Street. Well, I mean, they're not really using all the math they learned uh, in their job. It was it was a way to signal that that they're smart, and that and that's what the function of elite degrees is today. And so the question is, you know, is this how we want to structure our educational system, where it's built around exclusivity, where it's built around if you don't have the degree, the credential, the signal, uh, even if you understand the content. You know, it's very difficult to apply for jobs. Most places have a prerequisite that you have to have a degree. Even jobs in the past that have never required that now do. And so this whole system is is sort of backwards. It's not about the knowledge. It's about the signaling. And, you know, unfortunately, too often the wrong people get the signals. Although wouldn't you say that the people that are in their doctoral programs, they have to defend themselves before they are given that degree? I get what you're saying. Um, are you are you zoning in on uh, on Ivy League specifically? I mean, when I went to college, mm-hmm. you know, I had a job, but it was also affordable. Now, my same school has gone up. I think about two hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm talking specifically about undergraduate education. I think, like you know, there is there is stuff of value and. Um, you know, more like vocational degrees, like uh, getting a law degree or going to med school or, or things like PhDs, where you actually then do research in the field or apply yourself in those fields. But when it comes to like an undergraduate education, the it's exactly what you're saying. The cost of in, of tuition is inflated like crazy, way beyond any anything else. And it's unclear why it's getting so much more expensive, right? Um, if anything, I mean, like you would expect with the laws of economics, you would expect it to get cheaper over time. Again, if you think about like, you know, the internet and all the technology that, that has come to be, the cost of disseminating knowledge should have gone down over time as, as the amount of technology has gone up, but it's been the exact opposite. So what explains that? And that's really the main thrust of the book is that you need degrees for signaling. And what the schools have done, the elite colleges, is they have rationed the supply of elite signals way beyond the point of rationality where things have gotten so, so, so scarce um, through collusion that uh, people are doing crazy things like varsity blues or lying about getting in. Or, you know, this is an interesting story I told in my book and in fact repeated uh, just, just a few weeks ago. So in 2007, there was a girl who pretended to be a Stanford student. She's on campus and everyone thinks she's a student. She's uh, taking exams like everyone else. Uh, she's eating at the dining hall. Well, it turned out she wasn't enrolled. She was just someone who was hanging around campus. And she every night she would sleep uh, in some random empty dorm room by climbing in through a window. 
And no one figured this out for like nine months. She was there for better, more than a semester, almost a whole year. The exact same story repeated itself a couple of weeks ago. There was another student, this time a male, who did something very similar again at Stanford, pretended to be a student for, for almost six months. So the question we have to ask is like, why are people so desperate for, for these signals that they're willing to pretend to that level? I mean, that is. But an argument for that, of course, is that these institutions have excellent teachers, right? I mean, the cro- who, I'm not saying 100%. No, no one's going to have that kind of, we've all had shitty teachers. We've all had shitty professors. But I think that that is part of it in theory that an exceptional professor will then pull out exceptionalism from the students. We all know that's not true because we've all been in classes with people that are less than exceptional and seem to get by just fine in life. So, and then we have places like in, in, you know, if you, in Europe, obviously where, or in uh, Sweden or something like that, where the education is covered by the government, that it is free to attend. These are still some of the best colleges in the world, but they're free. Yeah. So, I mean, to your point, I think that the elite colleges are awesome. I think that they provide a very valuable product. I'm not arguing that they don't. What I'm saying, and I'm not criticizing these students who've done these crazy things. Uh, in fact, I'm saying the exact opposite. Uh, what I'm saying is if the schools are so good and they have so much money, why haven't they been teaching more students, right? That's the main thrust of this book, of this college cartel argument. What I'm saying is they're rationing the amount of seats, the amount of education that they're providing and they do it through collusion. And so specifically what I'm saying is, you know, the way the education market works for elite education today is that in order to attract applicants, you have to top the U.S. News and World Report. And the top schools have come up with this corrupt bargain with the U.S. News and World Report where they will share preferential information that they don't give to any other ranking system. They will share peer reviews. They will share insider data. They will do everything in their power to make the U.S. News and World Report as credible as possible and thereby help it achieve monopoly market share in the rankings market, so long as U.S. News and World Report comes up with a rankings criteria that they like. Of the schools. Yeah. And so as long as U.S. News and World Report comes up with a criteria that makes the elite colleges feel good and get ranked well, they will go along with it. And this is what they've done. And so the U.S. News and World Report's ranking criteria basically says admit as few students as possible and spend as much money as possible per student. So the whole logic of the system is a cartel logic. It's don't produce more of the product and see how much money you can spend, aka like hike the price up as much as possible because these are nonprofit institutions. So everything they take in, they have to spend. And everything they spend, they have to take in. There's a caveat, of course, with research colleges. Research colleges are going to try and go ass over elbow trying to find as much money as they possibly can in order to fund their researchers, the grants and all that. But one of the arguments for less students per would be a better education in theory, right? Overcrowding of, of classrooms means less education per student in theory. So, so in theory, yes and no, uh, because in theory, you know, in every other market, you would expect them to buy or build new campuses. If you have a really successful restaurant, you open up a new, a new location. So if, if Harvard is so, so good at teaching students, if they have the secret sauce, then they should have been trying to build out 
Harvard 2, Harvard 3, Harvard 4, Harvard 5. And they haven't done that. We haven't seen a new entrant into the elite, elite college market since like 1900, you know, when like U Chicago was founded by, by Rockefeller or like Caltech or Stanford by Leland Stanford. Since then, I mean, there's been no entry into this market. It's been basically foreclosed. And so what you're left with is the schools already within it have to expand um, if we're, if we're going to have less rationing of these goods. But they haven't done that. And again, it's because of this logic. Do you know what the percentage of scholarship is in general for these kinds of schools? Sure. So it's minuscule. So I think, you know, I, I was looking at one elite college's budget. Their budget per year is something like five or six billion dollars. The amount of money they spent on financial aid was something like 50 million. And again, those are rough numbers, but it's not, it's not That's anywhere. Tiny. Yeah, it's it's not anywhere that, you know, I think uh, I was looking at it. They spent more money on like the construction of their new gym. Um, I was going to say, I bet other, the athletic yeah, department yeah, did okay. <laughs> yeah, some, some other infrastructure costs way more than the amount of money they're spending on financial aid. So, you know, and, and then if you look at like the rate of return on the endowment, which is average something like 10% a year, where now like the top 20 schools are sitting on a collective endowment of $250 billion. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. This is a cartel, right? I mean, if Escobar did it, we'd be kicking and screaming. When is it the a cartel or a monopoly? Yeah, so cartel and monopoly, I think, are it's it's a collective monopoly. So that's what I mean by cartel. Is they is they collectively uh, exercise monopoly power in this market, which is that they know that you know rankings are zero sum. There are only going to be so many schools in the top twenty five, which will be twenty five, and you know the the nature of the rankings is that. Uh, if you try to build a new campus, if you try to expand the number of students, you're going to fall. And so therefore, no one wants to do it. So you have this system where you have an artificial scarcity of slots at the undergraduate level, and the price keeps going up and up mm -hmm. and up, and people are willing to pay it because there is so much frenzy for these limited number of seats. And and the other thing is, I mean, you know, it used to be like 50, 60 years ago, you know, most Americans would apply to American schools. Today, the whole world applies to these schools. And which is why you're seeing, I think, like Columbia's acceptance rate this year was in 3%. Stanford is usually below 5%. Some schools don't even publish their acceptance rate anymore because it's getting so low. Like these schools are in a race to see who can get to zero first. And, and it's insane. And the only way to explain the logic of this stuff, of not building new campuses, of not trying to expand is again through, through this cartel model, uh, this monopoly model, which is, you know, restrict output, price goes through the roof, and then use that money to, you know, get even more wealthy, more wealthy, more wealthy. And that's exactly what's been happening. It is bonkers how much an education costs. It does not seem cost effective at all. When you look at, I looked up um, MIT the other day, uh, my father went to MIT and Caltech, and I interviewed him for the show a couple of weeks back. And he said, oh, yeah, I think when I went to MIT, you know, a bazillion years ago, I think mm -hmm. he said it was $600 a year. And I said, oh, I wonder what it is now. And I looked it up, and I think the average was around 60 k Yeah, right. And, and you know, what's, what's really sad about the whole thing is, you know, it would be one thing if it was just the top. 20 schools or top 30 schools that have gotten super expensive, but you had a ton of other options where students could go to get, to get another still quality education. The issue is, you know, so we could frame it this way. So like, if you take a look at UVA, I'm from Virginia. And so UVA sees itself sort of as in competition with, you know, the, the lower tier IVs, um, you know, the Pens, the Cornells of the world. 
And in order to compete with them in the rankings, remember, it's more spending, less students. They need more revenue. And the state regulates how much they can charge in-state tuition. So what ends up happening at public schools like UVA and Berkeley and Illinois and Michigan, these like top-tier public schools, is they take more and more international students and fewer and fewer in-state students. Even though it's the taxes paid by in-state students, parents, and themselves that are funding these schools and have brought them to this position to begin with. So, you know, when the schools needed it, the American taxpayer showed up and supported them, carried these schools on their back. And now when the American taxpayer, you know, applies to these schools, they can't even get their kids in. And again, it's because of this monopoly logic at the top, which has been like transmitted all the way through the system. So if this happens at UVA, now Virginia Tech, which is competing with UVA, has to do the exact same thing. And it's basically this trickle down, you know, monopoly structure which is infecting all of higher education, which is why schools that aren't in the top, you know, don't need to be so selective are becoming more selective or taking more international students and are getting more expensive. It's all because of, you know, this, this weird logic that we've uh, ascribed to higher education. And again, because of this corrupt bargain between U.S. News and the top, you know, 25 schools. Oh, and greed. <laughs> yeah, and greed, and greed, that's right. <laughs> that's, the, that's the number one part. It's always economic, yeah. it's always money. And so the power structures uh, are set up to supply more power to the power structures. It's just the way it is. How do we fix it though? What's your- Right, yeah. So, you know, one of, one of the things I ask in the book is, look, if, if Teddy Roosevelt came back to life for Woodrow Wilson or Franklin Roosevelt or Thurman Arnold, you know, if these trust busters were, you know, evaluating this, what would they say? If we went back to the progressive era and brought some of those people back, you know, what would they say when they look at this? And I would, you know, I think they would say, let's break it up. We broke up Standard Oil and we broke up AT&T and we went after Microsoft in the 1990s when they're being monopolists. And in this case, where I think, you know, much, much worse um, behavior from the schools than, than in many of those other instances, you know, no one's really tried to bring the antitrust hammer down on the schools for restricting supply in this way. I think it's absolutely Tom. So, you know, the first thing I think that that uh, that the government should be doing is severing the link between U.S. News and World Report and the colleges. So, you know, the very straightforward, easy way to do that is just buy U.S. News and World Report. So it costs you like a hundred million, two hundred million dollars to buy that publication, which is again really crazy aspect of this is like you have this like really tiny newspaper, you know, two hundred million in the grand scheme of uh, two hundred fifty billion endowments, you know across the top 25 schools is not so big, right? Any one of these schools could have bought and shuttered U.S. News and World Report if they didn't want this type of structure and uh, to, to persist. But they didn't do it because they benefit from this independent hub that can coordinate all of these folks. And so what I say is the government should come in and buy U.S. News and World Report and either change the criteria to incentivize the things we want or just completely shutter it and come up with a new ranking system. By That's trusting the government a lot, though. I mean, the government isn't exactly famous for doing the right thing once they own things like newspapers and or uh, social platforms. So, so I do agree with you in, in that sense. But I guess the question would be, you know, who do we trust more yeah, on, the, on balance, right? Is, is it going to be the schools to police themselves? Or is it going to be at least the government where there's some democratic check? on how we should be running policy. So I don't think there's any perfect solutions here, but there are better solutions. And so I think that's definitely one of them. The other is, you know, so one of the things the schools do is they fix prices. 
there's a lawsuit right now against 17 elite colleges, Yale, Columbia, Georgetown, Duke, U Chicago, Hopkins, uh, Emory, and a bunch of others, Dartmouth. And these schools basically have been colluding on financial aid offers for students for the better part of 20 years. Congress has passed an antitrust exemption, and the media hasn't covered it in 20 years. It's passed in, in the late 90s. And every year since then, they've been fixing prices on financial aid by coming up with a common formula all of them are going to use to evaluate how needy someone is, which is, again, against the law, but for this antitrust exemption, it's been allowed. That's something I would roll back immediately. That's something that clearly needs to get rolled back. There's been a couple of those happening in Congress with the antitrust. They've put exemptions on a few very questionable things. And that's why I'm saying is you trust that government to then turn around and, and do the right thing. Uh, for me, I would think you get the other hundreds and hundreds of colleges across the United States to all chip in and then make that purchase. If that's really, truly the answer, then you get, you know, 4,000 schools to chip in and then make it a level playing field. Right. I mean, look, I, you know, I, I definitely see what you're saying that, uh, you know, Congress and, and the government is subject to regulatory capture. The issue is, you know, obviously if the schools make the purchase, then it's directly captured, at least with, uh, you know, with uh, Congress or, you know, uh, one of the federal agencies, there's at least the veneer of, of democracy. Definitely a veneer. But, you know, again, that, these ideas are more, I think, to stimulate the conversation. But certainly the antitrust exemption, you could roll that back, right? Like that, that's something that's like a no-brainer policy area where we don't want schools fixing prices and we don't want to legalize them. Um, another area is, you know, one thing schools do is they lobby Congress to increase subsidies, things like Pell Grants, tuition tax credits, things like this, endowment tax exemptions. And then uh, what they do is they increase their tuition by the exact amount or very close to the exact amount as the subsidies that they've just enacted. So, you know, Congress and the government thinks they're making school more affordable by spending more money on education. But what ends up happening is all of that money just gets absorbed by the schools because they just increase their prices in proportion. And that's something, again, I would, you know, roll back. I think people should be paying way more attention to this. And I think, you know, to your point about regulatory capture and, and how, you know, there's so much corruption in the system. I think one of the reasons is that people just aren't that aware about, you know, these issues. They, they don't know necessarily that that this is how Congress has been working. And that's one of the things I'm trying to communicate in the book is, look, if we pay attention, then there's much less likelihood of this type of corruption persisting over time. But we have to pay attention. And unfortunately, I think the media has been asleep at the wheel on a lot of these antitrust issues when it comes to higher education. They haven't spoken about this exemption, like I mentioned, in 20 years. There's been virtually no reporting on why schools are so scarce. There's been very little reporting on how much the schools spend on lobbying on these tuition tax credits, on subsidies, on why inflation still keeps going up. To the extent there's been reporting, you know, it's been on the student debt issue, which again, I agree is an important issue, but, but the media has never really fundamentally tackled the question, well, why is there so much debt to begin with? Why are the prices so high that people have to borrow against it? Well, and look what happens when the administration tries to offset some of those debts. Then uh, a tale gets woven together that isn't even accurate to then vilify that attempt. Right, right, and, and and again, I mean, this is where you know I hope the the book will correct some of, some of those narratives, which is that I think you know some people think, oh, uh, you know, young people took out all these loans, 
They went to these schools. They were just being irresponsible. When I think the reality of the situation is, you know, they took out loans because they had to, because they're being held at gunpoint by, you know, a very sophisticated monopoly. And that's the story that I think we need to be telling in order for people to really understand what's happening in these markets. You know, this distorted idea that, that these are all individual errors or mistakes is wrong. This is a, a gangster capitalism holdup. And, you know, until we break that monopoly power, like Teddy Roosevelt would have or Woodrow Wilson would have, we're not going to fix this system. And so that's what I really advocate for in the book. I could only imagine what Roosevelt would say if he was to be alive and well today. I mean, (laughs) he'd be alive for 10 seconds, read the paper and then drop dead. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Honestly, (laughs) Uh, it's all very intriguing. Certainly intriguing. I wonder these days, also intellectualism, education is being vilified really at a basic level, even elementary school level, you know, banning books, not wanting to talk about particular things in history or uh, human suffering. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens moving forward. I do believe that those in power want to stay there and the harder, the easiest way to control a, a populace is to make them not very bright or to make them quite uneducated. Uh, and then they're cattle and easy to lead around. No offense right. to cows everywhere. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know, they, people that are easily led are not necessarily people that uh, we're dealing with here. So that's another question. That's why I question whether or not the government would even be willing to step in because I think they also like the power structure of a not so educated. I'm not, I'm not going to say bright or unbright, but I don't think it necessarily has to do with whether you're smart or not. I think education is the path to being smarter. Certainly people are born with higher IQs or not, but I do think that making sure people are not given the opportunity to learn at such a basic level. I mean, people in this country read at a fourth grade level at best on average that's horrifying. We should be absolutely ashamed of that statistic in this country, but it serves people in power. Yeah. So look, I completely understand that critique. I think it's, you know, in in large part, pretty fair that the government hasn't done enough on education and hasn't done a good job. And there might even be like self-serving motivations for why it hasn't, you know, the philosophy of government that I ascribe to and, and the one that I write from is not that government is something apart from us, but that government is something that we ought to be involved in and ought to try and, and seize the levers of power and the ship of state and steer it in the right direction. And so, you know, what I'm writing to hopefully is uh, people who understand that responsibility and vote like they understand or run for office like they understand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because again, you know, if we, if we, if we divorce ourselves from our government and, and think of them as, as something other than us, and it always will be, and they always will lord over us. You know, you have you need to have the courage to put your name on the ballot, uh, and and to make sure that you you know vote on the ballot, right? So there are all these ways in which you know the situation might seem quite grim, and I think indeed it is, but uh, that doesn't mean things can't change. In fact, I think like you know the American government's actually been much more corrupt at other parts of American history, and there's always been this sort of you know this uh, reckoning. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's one interpretation of the progressive era, 
the, the era that took on, you know, standard oil and, and the telecom monopolies, uh, the sugar monopoly, big beef, you know, that's exactly what happened. And I think everyone has, has a way to contribute to that effort, whether it's uh, knocking on doors, signing petitions, talking about this on social media from, from very small things to very big things like running for office. You know, that's the philosophy of government. I think that uh, a very affirmative one that we ought to describe to. And also, it serves everyone. All the rising tide lifts all boats model of education. It serves us all to make right. sure that anybody and everybody who wants to get an education at a higher level gets one. Period. That's right. I mean, that's where the sentence ends. Right. No, it's a hundred percent right. And so the the question I think we ought to be asking is, how do we do that? A to the best of our ability and be at the lowest possible cost. And I think on both of those vectors, we haven't been doing nearly as well as we can. Did you find that your own college education has served you in the workforce out there trying to get work and a job or since you kind of obviously light your own flame and are doing your own thing and it hasn't really affected you either way? So it's been interesting, you know, I've, I've sort of uh, took my own path after, after undergraduate uh, after an undergraduate degree, um, you know, I took a couple of years off to, to focus on a really big issue because I felt that, you know, in our political discourse at the time, a couple of years ago, I felt like there wasn't enough original thinking. You know, I had gotten kind of tired of hearing the same arguments that are stale. And no matter which party was in power, you know, the actual agenda didn't change so much. And so I wanted to take some time off and think about a big problem. And see if I could come up with unique insights. And, and the problem I started with was, why does college cost so much in the United States? And as I did more and more research, I sort of narrowed into this idea of, like, why do elite colleges cost so much? And then finally, you know, how do these collusive relationships, these sort of corrupted relationships work between the elite colleges themselves and the government? And that's what the book became. So, you know, I, I, I sort of took my own path. I'm now in law school. So I'm back in school. And again, you know, I, I told you a little bit about my family, the culture uh, that I was steeped in, that, that education is this, is this really important thing. And it's how you both improve yourself and the world around you. Um, and I still do believe in that. Doctor, think, lawyer, you know, engineer. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I think, uh, you know, I, I, I might diverge from the traditional view on is, you know, how we define education. I think people who are self-educated, self-taught, self, uh, you know, um, learned are very impressive people. And I think that's something that we don't place enough value on or encourage enough people to do is to learn for themselves. Um, and I think that's something that if I could change about our culture, both in this country and around the world, that is something that, that I think I would. You know, it's not always about credentials. It's about um, how you think through things and making sure you're asking the right questions. And so hopefully this book helps start some of those conversations. And tell everybody the title of the book and where to find it. Yes. So the book is called The College Cartel. It will be coming out uh, this winter, maybe January. But you can follow it and me at breakthecartel.com. Um, there's a petition on that website uh, that uh, is asking Congress to disallow price fixing and to make sure that they don't resurrect any antitrust exemptions for elite colleges. I would really appreciate it if you could sign that just to make, you know, Congress understand that people are paying attention this time and that, you know, 
this won't be like all the other times if they, you know, betray uh, middle class and working class families, there will be people who notice. So, you know, those are some of the some of the areas where I think uh, people can have the biggest impact and they can make sure they stay in touch with me. Have you made plans to speak before Congress? So I've, I've actually spoken with a couple of uh, people in Congress, a couple of staff. I won't mention who, but but I was just, you know, I've been trying to speak with people on, on both sides of the aisle. And there is a Republican congressman in particular who's taken quite an interest in this, which I think is really good because unless we do something like this in a bipartisan manner, I don't think it gets done. I'm really, I've been really uh, encouraged by the conversations that I've been having. I think people understand it. You know, people in Congress even understand it. Their constituents understand it. And I think education is starting to, you know, reemerge as one of the big salient political issues. And so I, I hope that uh, we can make some progress this time. Do you think you'll focus more on the public school, the state schools? Because I'm um, truly private schools get to do whatever they want because they're private, right? But if you start this at a at the ground level of the state schools that are still, I don't know of the 25, how many of those are state schools, but you bring up such an interesting point that now those educations are going to people from out of the country. Yeah. So look, I think it's important to start at all levels. You know, obviously we have the most agency as voters over the state schools, over the UVA's, the Michigan's, the Berkeley's. So I think it is important to, to exercise that in local elections. However, what I will say is that, you know, we have a DOJ and we have an FTC and we have state's attorneys general who can bring antitrust suits against the schools. And I'd like to see more of that. I'd like to see more exercise and enforcement of the laws we already have against the schools when they're so clearly breaking, I think, quite a few of them. That's sort of the position I'm advocating. Whether or not they're private or public, you know, they have to abide by this nation's laws. And in the cases where they aren't, I think it needs to be brought to bear. Have you experienced pushback from any of these colleges, these elite level institutions? You know, it's, it's interesting. So, you know, I've organized a couple of protests. So I did a protest at Yale, Yale's graduation last May. I did a protest at my own graduation at Georgetown where I dressed up as a Monopoly man and shook the president's hand um, and told him to pull out of the price fixing cartel because if he did that, then he would positively contribute to folding this cartel like a tent and he could, you know, really with some pride reflect on the actions that he's taken. And so he's shaking my hand and he's giving me my diploma and I'm, I'm sort of like, you know, in his ear about this. And he goes, okay, okay. And then he just moves me along. And so, you know, the, uh, the reception I've gotten to the extent I've gotten a reception is very positive from students and very tepid from the universities. I think they think that, you know, they're going to ignore this until, uh, it really gets on their radar. Um, which is why I'm happy to have conversations like this to, uh, spread the message. Absolutely. And I think if you're starting to get people, uh, on the hill to pay attention, then that is that's certainly a great way to start as well. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm really excited. I think uh, you know this is going to be the generation where I think we see a lot of reform in education. I think that's going to have really profound and important um, positive consequences for the United States. And you're a great example of one can be a lot. One voice can be a lot because one voice will beget two, which will beget four and so on and so on. And somebody's got to do it. Might as well be you. And 
uh, always and every time I encourage listeners to vote because I think there is a misconception that our voice and our vote do not matter. And they do, they do, especially uh, at the city and state level. And if you don't think that's true, then go check out some of the results of our most recent midterm elections and see how very close those votes are and why it matters. So I couldn't agree with you more. I completely agree with that. And I would also say that agency is sort of like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So if you think you can have an impact, you will. You know, there's that famous saying, he who says he can and he who says he can't are both usually right. And I think that's absolutely been true in my experience. Not, th- I don't think like difficult things are easy to do, you know, I, but I think if you acknowledge that they're difficult and you try anyway, you'll be surprised how far you can get. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for this, you know, honestly, fabulous conversation. Uh, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. You as well. And let me know how it goes as you make progress to this thing, you know, come back on the show and tell me where things are going, where they, how you've, what you've accomplished. I'd love to hear how, how this moves forward. Susan, I'd absolutely love to come back on this show. Thank you so much. That's great. And thank you for listening, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.